bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. We cover a lot of issues on this program, but as you know, we focus on the worsening climate emergency because it is an emergency, and we're going to focus exclusively on climate material this, this program. So remember, if you value what we do, we need your support. Visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website. Better yet, make a monthly pledge of whatever amount works for you. And thanks also to the local businesses who support this program. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online. And Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Groovy Goods, that's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop, where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. All right, so here's our lineup today, folks. Uh, Later in the program, we'll be talking about the carbon pricing bill with a representative of Citizens Climate Lobby. We'll also be discussing who the biggest climate criminal is, and it might not be who you think. We'll also look at the great U.S. climate migration, which has already begun. And to wrap it all up, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to give a garden update. Good news, but stuff you need to know in terms of preparing for where we're heading with this new climate era. First, though, it is my delight to welcome to the program two friends of mine who are also very active in their communities. Uh, Mark Allen Derry, a doctor... Of infectious disease physician in New Orleans, and uh, Tony Messina. She's an attorney in New Jersey, and they're on opposite ends of the wrath of Hurricane Ida. Welcome to the program, folks. Hi, Ed. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, hey, Mark Allen, let me ask you this. Uh, we'll start down in New Orleans, since you get hit first. How is recovery going? Um, you know, it's spotty. Uh, the whole city lost power, as, as you know. The, the levees held up. We, um, uh, there was something after Katrina, something like $15 billion went into really, really, really uh, uh, focusing on the levees and making sure that they hold up in these so-called once in a hundred year storms that seem to be happening every hundred days. Um, and uh, luckily they, they, they did hold up. However, unfortunately what happened was that power was lost. And, and I know that, you know, people, uh, you know, not having power is pretty remarkable. Not being able to charge your phone, not being able to uh, pump gas at a gasoline. For me, I have an electric uh, car, not being able to charge my car, uh, not being able to get food, not, no commerce, uh, not being able to go shopping for food. I mean, it's, it, it was really, really remarkable. So we're having that crisis right now uh, and trying to figure out how uh, to get people, uh, one, how to get power back on, and two, how to get commerce started again. And I just uh, left uh, uh, this morning. I was making rounds at the hospital in the COVID units, and then I just volunteered at, at one of these cooling stations slash medical uh, uh, clinics where people don't have power uh, because uh, something like uh, 70% of the city still does not have power in New Orleans. I mean, the whole city went dark. Uh, wow. Fortunately, I live in downtown uh, where a lot of critical services are, so we were able to get power back uh, 24 hours ago. But wow. there was five or six days without any power whatsoever. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty extreme. Uh, Tony, what's it like up your way, New York, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania areas, hard yeah. hit by the under, other end of uh, Hurricane Ida? Well, some um, New Jersey was hit really badly. As uh, I wasn't in Philly, but I saw pictures. I was amazed at how much was underwater. And New York City, um, specifically Queens, where there's, I guess, an intersection of lots of different runoffs of water. Whole roads were were just submerged, and now it's being cleaned up. I mean, the, the immediate aftermath, like the night when it was all happening, there were cars littered everywhere. I, I had friends who were driving home from Arthur Ashe the tennis stadium in Queens, going back to New Jersey, and they were saying it was almost, uh, you know, apocalyptic looking with abandoned cars under uh, on highways and under overpasses where water would naturally pool. And people don't know how to drive like that, right, over here. So they would try to get through the giant puddle. The car would yeah. short and they'd have to get out somehow before the water rose and just leave their cars and seek shelter. So those carcasses of cars have apparently been removed from what I've heard, but those first 12 hours just looked very scary. Yeah. And Mark Allen, you mentioned that the uh, the city, well, the, the, I'm not sure who paid for all of it, but I know there was about 15 million bucks, sorry, 15 billion put into uh, flood protection systems. And, uh, you know, if you look at the cost of, uh, of cleanup from some of these storms, that's actually a bargain. I'm, I'm looking at the uh, the estimated cost of cleanup in the Northeast, Tony, where you're from, 95 billion. So a 15 billion dollar investment in a decent flood protection system makes a lot of sense, you know. And I just um, I, I I imagine more of that discussion is going to happen as we move forward toward trying to restore conditions to normalcy in both areas. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I mean, I didn't realize it was going to be that much to clean up up there, but. You know, this is something that I, a theme that you and I talk about um, in that the, what, what we're seeing here with climate change is, is, is privatizing profits and socializing losses. And that's, that money's got to come from somewhere. And the people who are responsible for the climate change, I refer to it as climate changed, that uh, uh, we're not seeing folks step up and, and, and bearing the, the, the cost. In, in particular, it was FEMA. So that means that you and I paid for the flood protection systems here in New Orleans. Right. But what we're not seeing are people who are responsible for the climate change are the ones that are bearing the cost. So, Tony, let me ask you this. I mean, after after Katrina, these changes, these investments were made in, uh, in New Orleans and had some favorable impact, uh, although, again, the situation is still pretty dire. But what about uh, Hurricane Sandy in the Northeast? That um, that was significant. Were there changes made that could have helped uh, mitigate the damage from Hurricane Ida? You know, I didn't see... One would have thought that after the, the big Hurricane Sandy, when, when people were literally... Um, without power for weeks and weeks, that there would have been significant infrastructure changes so that this storm, which we weren't even anticipating, wouldn't have caused the amount of damage it did. But none of that apparently happened mm -hmm. because New York was just as unprepared in Sandy. All the same places were underwater that were underwater in Sandy. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, it's been very discouraging to see. And the other problem was there was no warning about this. Like we thought, we all heard right up to the last, the, the pouring rain. This is just the aftermath of Ida. Don't getting some fringe of it. And instead, it was as bad as Sandy with right. the with the winds and the amount of water. And so there was no anticipation. It was just 
a strange set of circumstances that no one predicted this would happen. Well, that's quickly. that's that's the shocking thing about it is you know well Hurricane Sandy again boom direct hit. Um, this is any anytime we have an aftermath of a hurricane. It may mean a lot of rainfall, maybe a few tornadoes, maybe a little damage, but nothing like this. I, I believe this may be the first time that the Northeast has been hit by a hurricane uh, that didn't hit it directly, that came across the land, you know, through the through the yeah. Gulf to get there. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think it just took everyone off guard because there was no declaration stay in your homes until we were in the midst of it. I mean, literally, a friend, as I said, was at this tennis stadium and they told them, do not leave the stadium. Instead of saying, wow. we're postponing the game, they had to stay there till two in the morning wow. until it was safer to leave. Yeah. So, Mark Allen, uh, and, and, you go ahead. And, and I was just going to add to that, that um, think about the power of that storm. And, and, I, and I'm happy to share with you kind of my 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 thoughts of it because i watched it hit landfall from city hall uh, on the eighth floor but we know that the purpose of um the, the wetlands and the marshlands in the in the um here in the gulf is meant to you know part of what they do is they slow down they act like speed bumps and they slow down hurricanes right. as they glide over the water but think about the power that storm hit and the fact that it made it all the way up to the east coast over land over all the obstructions that you would expect land to, to have, and it still hit with the ferocity that it did in the north, uh, right. in the northeast. It's just—it's really remarkable. That is remarkable and disturbing. So yeah, and again, the scientific community is pretty clear about this. Climate change is what's causing these storms on steroids. Is the um, conversation in New Orleans, Mark Allen, about climate change getting a little easier? I mean, it's, I mean, right now we're still deep, deep, deep in recovery mode. Uh, but I think, you know, I think so. I mean, it's the, it, New Orleans is a, is a, is a blue, you know, is a blue dot in an ocean of red. So it's always been more or less easy to talk about this stuff. But the more challenging thing is, is that this is an oil state. I mean, there's, there's cities in, in Louisiana called uh, oil, you know, it's the same thing as in, in, in Southern Texas as well. And uh, unfortunately, our, you know, we, we aren't seeing our elected leaders step up to the moment. I mean, they're focusing this, this session, they were focusing on, you know, taking voting rights away, making guns, uh, uh, holding, you know, carrying guns e easier, taking reproductive rights uh, uh, away from women and trans rights and this sort of stuff, instead of focusing on the real issues, yeah. uh, unfortunately. So... How about in the Northeast, uh, Tony? Would you say the conversation about climate change is getting a little easier? Well, I, you know, I think as as Mark Allen described, we're the opposite of you, right? We're mostly a blue state, ex, uh, with exceptions in like northern New York and some parts of Pennsylvania, et cetera. But um, I think what I've seen that's different about this is I think it's ready for a grass move, a grassroots, a greater grassroots initiative because it's now a topic of conversation with people in the store, right? Or people at the, the community pool who are saying, we need to do something. This is now no longer down the road. This is happening now. Like when you walk through your town park, that's not even near a brook. And after this storm, the dead fish on the grass, you know, uh-oh, something's going on here and we all have to pay attention yeah. and do something. Well, I, I really want to thank you two for joining us. I, I appreciate the, uh, especially taking the time uh, during, I mean, I know you, you both have to be really busy and your communities have to be really overwhelmed with trying to recover from this. So I really want to thank you both for joining us. 
Oh, and, you're, and, uh, my, our pleasure. My pleasure. If I, I, if I can make one quick comment, and, sure. and, uh, and if you can help get the word out to, uh, to our political leaders, that if there was ever a time to look toward green infrastructure and that reconciliation bill, they all need to be pointing at New Orleans right now, that right. the city is still uh, without power. And if we did have some uh, alternate sources of energy, we wouldn't be in the dire situation right. that we're in. And right. we really need to get that reconciliation bill, that $3.5 trillion bill passed. Right. So we'll be talking about that later, actually, next segment of the program. Uh, thanks again. We've been talking with Tony Messina. She's a New York, New Jersey attorney. And we've been talking with Dr. Mark Allen, uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry. He's an infectious disease physician in New Orleans. Thanks again for joining us. When we come back, folks, uh, Bruce Hagan's going to be on the phone with us. Will, he's with Citizens Climate Lobby. We'll be talking about that bill and about carbon pricing. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for joining us today as we broadcast this conversation from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, remember that what you hear on this program, you won't hear on the corporate-owned stations. And you can support the alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor of the Fallon Forum. You can just email me, email me at ed at fallonforum.com for details. And thanks also to our local business partners, including Westrom Optometry, Located in Des Moines East Village, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Our cat loves her, our chickens, who knows whether they love her, but uh, she takes care of them. <laughs> Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by calling Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. I would like to welcome to the program Bruce Hagen. He's from Petaluma, California. He's with the Citizens Climate Lobby. Years ago, he worked for uh, Bob Packard, a, a senator from Oregon, a Republican senator from Oregon, Back when I guess Republicans uh, were more concerned about the environment, maybe? Uh, you can straighten me out on that, Bruce. But uh, we're here today to talk about the carbon fee and dividend uh, initiative, the carbon pricing bill, uh, moving its way through the U.S. Senate. Uh, uh, Bruce, welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much, Ed. 
Yeah. And so uh, you um you were with uh, Bob Pack. I'm curious about that. You were with Bob Packwood back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. That's right. And he was a Republican senator that seemed to care about the environment. Yes. And that was not unusual, especially for Oregonians. But that was back when uh, Jimmy Carter was trying to get clean energy going and the Alaska Lands Bill and other various milestone pieces were approved. And Packwood led the effort to get a, a federal solar tax credit. Hmm. Uh, first time ever. And that's been, what is that, 50, almost uh, 50. It's been a long time. Yeah. And one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing now and working for carbon pricing is that, you know, we thought federal incentives and state programs and people's goodwill would give us a solar revolution. Well, it's taken a lot longer than we thought it was going to take. Part of the problem is that every time somebody pumps oil out of the ground or pulls coal out or shoves it in a pipeline somewhere, uh, they get to put it into the atmosphere for free. And that, right. of course, makes the economics look a lot better. And they're not paying the price, and whoever uses their product doesn't pay the price of the stuff we're seeing now. So how, climate con, climate convulsions that are going on. So yeah, we're seeing the idea is to put the, put the price into the put that cost into the price right. of the product. And we're seeing plenty of climate convulsions right now, including in your home state of California. So the um, again, the carbon pricing would basically say, okay, this is a um, this is a costly byproduct of industry or agriculture. Or other other or transportation, and uh, we're going to start charging for the right to be able to produce and pollute. Basically, is that do I have it in a nutshell? That's good in a nutshell. There's there's some nuance to it that's really important. It's not a gas tax. It's not paying at the pump. It's not paid by the end users ultimately, unless they choose to continue to buy products from the companies that actually do physically pay the tax. And those are the extractors and the importers of fossil fuels. Right, so, and, and so again, yeah. part of the uh, the revenue generated will go back to your average person in terms of a dividend. Do I have that correct as well? That is correct. There's different versions of this bill, but there's a couple of really good ones we like. And uh, yeah, the idea is that uh, the polluters who are starting this pollution chain off uh, pay the people who own the climate. Everybody gets the same amount, more or less, right. depending on the bill. But uh, most of the people at the lower, uh, well, up until you get to the higher tiers of income, come out ahead. They get more in these dividends on a monthly basis than they pay out in increased cost of living uh, caused by higher fuel costs. And you would think that would appeal to the average voter. But I'm guessing that uh, some of the folks who would be paying the, the fee part of it, the carbon pricing part of it, some of those Folks are also big players in terms of campaign finance. Uh, it may be it may be harder, for example, to convince ExxonMobil that this is a good idea. Yeah, and, and uh, what I want to make clear to your listeners is that we have this fantastic opportunity now. I've been working on climate for like half a century, and it's always like one of these days we're going to get some really good legislation, and boy, won't that be great? Well, that day has come. Okay, it's not going to happen because the fossil fuel lobby has a lot of power in Congress. Right. But with this budget reconciliation process you might have heard about, the Democrats can pass and get signed by President Biden climate legislation. The, the key is, can we get the people to speak up for their interests in a healthy climate and getting these carbon dividends and economic justice by contacting their members of Congress now, like in the next couple right. of three weeks? Yeah. 
So did the um, do do uh, the Senate Democrats uh, unit? I mean, across the board, support the legislation? Um, I would say not yet. Uh, okay. But in the context of this reconciliation bill, and particularly with the warning shots everybody is getting on climate now, we think that we can get 51 votes for a strong carbon price in this reconciliation package. And what about Republican uh, senators? Uh, Republican senators, the message to Republicans uh, uh, who might have their doubts about climate change is that if we don't have a carbon price, we are not going to be able to ship products into Europe, into the EU in a couple of years uh, without paying there what's called a border adjustment, which is tied to the, the carbon price. In other words, if you don't pay the carbon price in America, you'll have to pay it to get into Europe. Is that, that, is, is that already established by the EU or is that something that's uh, being it's, proposed? It's in their pipeline. It's pretty solid. I think politically it's solid. They just have to implement it. Right. But right now the threat is being taken very seriously by U.S. manufacturers and exporters. And when they make the connection with the climate and the need to have a carbon price, then voila. We may not have support. Uh, we may not have leadership, but we won't have a level of opposition perhaps from the Republicans that we might have for some other method of uh, other method of climate action. So uh, once this passes the Senate, it's got to go to the House, correct? Yeah, in fact, and it's working in parallel that the, okay. the reconciliation process is rather complicated. We'll sure. get into it, but uh, it's appropriate now for uh, your listeners, any constituent that cares about climate to go to uh, this website, uh, which will tell them how they can contact the senators and the House members and what the message is. And if I could give you that at least once. Sure, fire it's, away. It's cclusa.org slash Senate. And CCL is Citizens Climate Lobby. So cclusa.org slash Senate. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and again, the prospects in the House? The prospects in the House are much stronger. The, the, of course, the House uh, Democrats have a majority but there's a concern that uh, people who don't understand this well enough, there's some bad, uh, ver- what I consider bad versions of carbon pricing, where uh, there's carbon credits and industry uses that to basically push the pollution onto uh, frontline communities. Hmm. Uh, that isn't a flaw of the kind of carbon fee and dividend legislation that we're supporting. So a lot of it is educating the uh, progressives uh, in Congress that this is perhaps the most progressive piece of legislation because of that dividend and how the, and how the fee money is collected and how it can be used. So you might have the support of Nancy Pelosi, but maybe not of AOC? Uh, well, I think an AOC voter, I've talked to people like this and they say, well, that's no good because it allows this pay to pollute and they show all their pollution into poor communities. That's not the case with this bill. Right. Okay. So and basically yeah. the price goes up. I have a very short story if I could tell you about a coal sure. pipeline that, or a coal train they're trying to run through my hometown to take Wyoming coal and ship it to China for their power plants. And uh, that is hanging by a financial thread. And as soon as legislation like this passes, all of a sudden they, uh, they run their numbers again and the costs go up like 15% in year one. And because the fee goes up every year, in five years, uh, it like doubles the cost of fuel for these power plants. Mm. That will not last. As soon as this bill passes, right. those plans are going to get canceled. Right. A lot of these pipelines that we're fighting are going to get canceled because they'll see the money's not going to be there. Right, right, right. So one more question, of course, uh, presuming it passes the House and the Senate, 
It goes to President Biden. Is he, is he committed to signing the carbon pricing legislation? I would say so, yes. Uh, some of his key people, uh, John Kerry, uh, Janet Yellen, uh, the Federal Reserve Board, Kerry is the ambassador for uh, cl global climate ambassador, are all outspoken supporters of carbon pricing, carbon fee and dividend. Okay, yeah. And, and, uh, and yes, he'll go along with it. And, and I, know, I know Citizens Climate Lobby has been working on this for, what, a decade or more? More. Yeah. So I remember first coming in, in contact with it back in 2014 during the Great March for Climate Action when we met mm -hmm. CCL people along the way and then later on in Washington, D.C., folks who have been working on it there for a while. Um, now, I, I again, part of the challenge in any type of uh, activism like this is uh, is staying engaged despite protracted you know, delays, losses, uh, setbacks. And, uh, and you've been at this for a long time, uh, Bruce. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you how do you keep it going? Um, well, aside from just you know having grandchildren and loving the world and loving to look outside and not see fires and smoke, uh, the the uh, the fellowship and I see this in Gold, Iowa and the community you've created around the work that you and your folks do there. Uh, you support each other. You make it fun. Uh, you make it meaningful, you learn along the way, and you treat everybody with uh, appreciation and respect. That's a, a real important element of the culture of CCL. But even if uh, we don't agree with them on everything, if we can agree with them on the need yeah. to protect well, the climate for our kids, uh, that will be enough to solve a lot of problems. Well, that's, that's really good to hear because uh, sometimes you see infighting within uh, movements of people focused on the same agenda. Their personalities get in the way, conflicts uh who knows what yeah. and, and and that's yeah. uh so counterproductive uh and thank you for the uh, shot i know bold iowa uh worked its tail off back in 2019 we had 200 200 plus people statewide who were bird dogging presidential candidates yes and uh i tell you that was a very very intense period for us <laughs> we're <laughs> kind of glad uh glad when that came to an end uh it was a, yeah. it was pretty hard it's, but it was it was big it's work hard work but yeah. you know a lot of good things take hard work so yeah. Well, uh, Bruce, we uh, thank you so much for joining us, Bruce. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And keep it all, keep it good. Keep it out there. Keep up the good work. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing right. what you guys come up with next. Folks, have been talking with Bruce Hagen of Citizens Climate Lobby. Again, if you're interested in, uh, in supporting the uh, carbon pricing bill that's presently before the U.S. Senate, go to cclusa.org slash Senate. Uh, back in a minute, folks, we're going to talk about the biggest climate criminal. Who is it? It might not be who you think. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. 
Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. heartland of the U.S. Well, actually, yeah, for corn and bean farmers, we're getting to the harvest time. But for those of us who raise food for local consumption, I tell you, dang, the harvest never seems to stop. Somewhere starting in March and maybe ending in November. Anyway, it's great to be back with you folks. You can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website or just contact me at ed at fallonforum.com. Thanks to our local business partners and also to our nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, building rural urban coalitions to address climate change and prevent the abuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes and workshops on how to turn your yard into dinner. You can get information about classes at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, so I, you know, who is the biggest climate criminal out there? Okay, so it's probably a long list. And you're thinking uh, maybe Donald Trump. You're thinking maybe ExxonMobil, uh, Big Oil, generally speaking. Some are going to say Big Ag. You know, I, I, then maybe this won't surprise you. But in my assessment, and this was just proven in my opinion, emphatically last week, the major climate culprit out there, the, the main reason we can't see action on climate change, it's none of the above that I mentioned before. It's not, not even the U.S. Congress. It's not even the Republican Party. It's the mainstream media. And there's a great, uh, great opinion piece last week by Mark Hertzgard. He's with uh, Covering Climate Now. The uh, title of his column is Why Won't TV News Say quote, climate change. And so as, as anybody who's paying attention has noticed, the uh, climate emergency is exploding. It's just all over the world. Between fires out west, Hurricane Ida, uh, <laughs> heat waves, drought, uh, you name it. It's, not, it's impossible not to notice that big bad things are happening. And it's impossible not to know, again, if you have any scientific literacy at all, and just for the record, um, I flunked biology in, in high school. <laughs> I, I, I'm not a good science student. Uh, and I didn't, take, I didn't even take a single science course in college. But I can read and I can think, and it doesn't take much reading and much thinking to understand that what's happening with our weather and with various other impacts is directly related to the changing climate instigated by human activity. And so thank you, Mark Hertzgard, for calling that out. And as he points out, uh, and, and he, uh, he references a, a study by Media Matters. Media Matters is, a, is an excellent nonpartisan watchdog group that follows what the press say and what they don't say. And so the organization looked at the six biggest commercial TV networks in, in the U.S. And that would be ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox, NBC, and MSNBC. He looked at them, they looked at them rather, uh, between August 27th and 30th, that's a four-day period, 
and they chronicled coverage of Hurricane Ida. There were 774 stories about Ida on just those six networks in just that four-day period. That's a lot of coverage. What, what, come on me, how's my math? 30 stories per day, roughly, per network? It's a lot of coverage. Well, again, as Hertz Guard points out in The Guardian, quote, painstaking scientific research has established that the climate crisis fuels extreme weather. This is not a mystery, not a secret, easily documented. So you want to guess, of those 774 stories that ran on the mainstream media networks, the big networks, you want to guess how many even mentioned climate change? 34. 34 out of 774 stories about Hurricane Ida, and again, that's about that's roughly 4%, even mentioned climate change, despite the overwhelming scientific consensus that this stuff is happening because of our activity, human activity. So, of course, you know, when you, when you don't mention that connection, people watching the news, and that's a big chunk of America, aren't going to get the connection. If, you don't make, if, you, if the media won't make the connection, the audience won't get the connection. They, don't, they won't see it. They're focused on the drama, the, the, the sadness of it all, the shock and amazement. And, and again, more and more people are not just watching this on TV. They're watching it out their window, their front door. They're, looking, they're seeing it in their streets. Uh, on their beaches, on the hillsides. They're seeing the impacts of climate change in their faces. And yet, if the media fails to make that connection, people will, and they are, failing to make that connection. And they're failing to make, even those who are making the connection will understand what's going on. And that's a growing number of people, a growing percentage. Even those who are making that connection aren't feeling the same level of inspiration, motivation, uh, drive to change their lives, to, to push Congress, to push their legislatures, to do things about it, to push their city councils as well. They aren't feeling that connection because they see the damage, the destruction, the chaos, but they don't hear the message that, hey, this is because of what we're doing to the climate, and we can stop it, we can change it. And the media aren't saying that. So yeah, Exxon, bad player. Big oil in general, bad player. Kelsey Warren, my favorite bad player. Thanks again for running an oil pipeline through our state, Mr. Warren. Donald Trump, climate denier in chief, obviously a bad player. And, you know, Joe Biden, mixed bag. You know, I'm, I think he came off earlier in his term as being more committed to addressing the climate crisis. But maybe now he's showing his true colors. And um, by true, I guess I mean ever-changing. Uh, maybe Biden's kind of like that horse, uh, horse of a different color from The Wizard of Oz, the... Uh, president of a different color. I mean, some of the things he's doing are not encouraging when it comes to addressing climate change. So yeah, maybe if Joe Biden sat down in front of the TV at night and saw Fox News, never mind, he probably doesn't watch Fox News, CNN, do a story about Hurricane Ida and make that strong connection to the changing climate, maybe he would feel more inspired to be consistent in terms of what he's doing on climate. Because remember, politicians respond to three things, primarily. Okay, four. Some of them actually want to make the world a better place. And believe me, that's true. There are those who want to do that. Uh, they also respond to voters, probably first and foremost to voters. But again, they only have to respond to voters every so often, whenever there's an election. They certainly respond to money. And they respond to the media. 
and the media could turn this around. And because they refuse to, that in my opinion, and a growing number of people's opinions, makes them the worst climate criminal out there. It really, it, it really is unconscionable. It's, it's not like you can't make that connection with your audience. You know, okay, here's a, here's a great example from something that Hertzgard and Kyle Pope wrote two years ago, also published in The Guardian. Again, one paper that gets it, that's doing their work on climate. And it is, it is sadly, again, written two years ago. Sadly, I'd say it's truer today than ever before. And I'll just quote from the story. Last summer, that would have been 2019, or actually 2018, I think. Last summer, during the deadliest wildfire season in California's history, MSNBC's Chris Hayes got into a revealing Twitter discussion about why U.S. television doesn't much cover climate change. Elon Green, an editor at Longform, had tweeted, Sure, would be nice if our networks, our news networks, the only outlets that can force change in this country, would cover climate change with commensurate urgency. And Hayes, he's also an editor-at-large for The Nation, replied that his program had tried, which was true, in 2016, all in with Chris Hayes spent an entire week highlighting the impact of climate change in the U.S. as part of a look at the issues that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were ignoring. The problem Hayes tweeted, the problem Hayes tweeted, was that, and I quote again, every single time we've covered climate change, it's been a palpable ratings killer. So the incentives are not great. End of quote. End of egg search from story. Okay, so how is this for an incentive, Mr. Hayes? And mainstream media generally, how is this for an incentive? More, way more significant than your ratings is the survival of this planet. Or, well, and the planet may go on without us. That's still an open question. But if we don't get our act together, ratings ain't going to matter a hill of beans. So, I mean, I, I, again, I credit The Guardian. The Guardian has great climate coverage. They don't force you to subscribe. Uh, you know, if, if, if I can, I like to donate to The Guardian. They don't force people to subscribe to get information about the existential threat of climate change. And here you've got a, you know, a, a solidly progressive uh, news person, Chris Hayes, basically trying to cover climate intensively for a measly week. He said an entire week. I'm going to say a measly week. And because it was, quote, a palpable ratings killer, they dropped it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, maybe, maybe we, the people, have to start focusing on boycotting the media. And I did this in a small way a couple years ago. After repeated conversations with uh, Carol Hunter with the Des Moines Register, I kept pushing, saying, why aren't you guys covering climate more? Where's the climate coverage? And she'd point to a story they did a month ago. I said, no, that's not, I'm not talking about that. I mean, look at, look at the coronavirus coverage. COVID-19 is top story nearly every day. If it's not top story, if Afghanistan or Hurricane Ida or a Texas abortion law, which is insane, uh, takes, if, if that's the top story, then COVID is second. And there's almost always more than just one story about COVID every single day. If they can prolong the coverage of a, granted, a, a, a crisis, a problem, if they can prolong that coverage for now nearly two years, certainly they could do more with climate change. I don't care if it's a, quote, palpable ratings killer. I'm going to start supporting the media that support coverage of this urgent moment. And again, I said to Carol Hunter, you know, if you're just going to do a story every month and call that good, I'm done. 
I've been subscribing to the Des Moines Register for, what, almost three decades? I'm done. I moved on. And that's what other people should do. Move on. Support the media that are talking about this, that aren't concerned about ratings killings. That's what we need to do. And again, if the media started getting this, I think the other dominoes would fall in place. All right, I got to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the great U.S. climate migration. I've talked about this before on my program, in my blog. Folks, it's already begun. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Back to the Fallon Farm. We're broadcasting uh, from a bunker uh, under a cornfield in the Midwest. Well, okay, some of that's true. Not all of it. Hey, thanks again to those in our listening audience who support this program. You know, our team of five dedicated volunteers couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already supporting our mission, consider a donation on the Fallon Forum website. That's uh, FallonForum.com. And thanks to the local businesses who make this program possible as well. Thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Klipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet. And the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake, familypsychiatry.com. Okay, so I'm going to share this with you from a, a, a resident of Reno, Nevada. Uh, this was, uh, I, I, I can't even remember where I saw, I saw, saw it in a couple places. I can't recall where I found this, but this resident no longer jogs outdoors. She stopped doing that back in July. We're in September now. And she says, quote, we've had smoke in the sky since the third week of July. We've been inhaling toxins for five weeks now. You can't be outside. You can't breathe. You can't see the sun. Now, I'm hearing from more and more people that life in the beautiful American West, and it is really obviously very beautiful, is, is, is getting to the point of... Um, of intolerable in some ways. I mean, the risk of fire, the uh, insurance premiums that come along with that risk, the uh, lack of water, I mean, the Colorado River drying up, uh, and, and again, the, the, all the fumes from the, from the fires. And we smell them in the Midwest. Actually, yeah, they, they, can, they can get those, uh, 
those smoke fumes out on the East Coast. It must be very problematic to have to deal with that constantly, in this case in Reno, Nevada, for five weeks straight. And that continues, of course, as the fire near Lake Tahoe continues to burn. So a, an editorial a writer, Alexander, Alexandra Tempest, she recently wrote uh, an opinion piece in the New York Times and says, quote, we are now at the dawn of America's great climate migration era. For now, it is piecemeal and moves are often temporary, but permanent relocations by individuals and eventually whole communities are increasingly becoming unavoidable. Yeah, and again, I've been talking about this. Um, I projected that there will be a significant influx of people into Iowa and other Midwestern and Southern states in the near future, next year, because uh, this situation is not going to get any better. Now, there's a real estate brokerage firm. I had not heard of them until recently. They're called Redfin. Maybe those who are more actively engaged in housing matters understand that, know, know about them. But they recently unveiled a rating system that scores climate risk down to the zip code. Now, I've, I've, I've looked at the site. I didn't quite see how to download that. Uh, maybe I got to pay in order to see which zip codes are the, are the safest in terms of climate risk. So um, in the, uh, there's something called the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. I've not heard of this. It's a division of the U.S. government, I believe. And it found that um, in 2020, this was last year, this is before things started getting as bad as they are now in 2021. In 2020, there were 1.7 million disaster-related displacements just in that one year, 1.7 million. Now, it doesn't say how far they moved. It doesn't say whether those disasters were climate-related. Presumably, many, if not most, of them were. Um, so I, I, I did check the Redfin site. And uh, there's an article in a magazine called Gizmodo, which is a great name, by the way. I, I wish my name was Edward Gizmodo, but it's not. Uh, it's much more Celtic uh, and probably easier to pronounce, but less funny. Anyway, uh, <laughs> in Gizmodo, uh, the article says, this is an article about Redfin, it says, quote, it's hard even to buy a home, but the climate crisis is making it even more challenging. Will a prospective house be underwater, catch on fire, Real estate brokerage firm Redfin is offering a new tool to assess those and other climate risks. So continuing, anyone who visits the site will soon be able to see a climate safety rating ranging from 0 to 100 for the county, city, neighborhood, and zip code of the home they're looking at. The grades provided by the startup Climate Check are based on an analysis of an area's risk for five climate-related disasters. One, storms. Two, temperature. Three, drought. Four, fire. And finally, floods over the course of 30 years, which is the length of a traditional mortgage. Okay, so um, Christine Taubin, she's with Redfin. She's the uh, chief growth, growth officer. And she said in a statement issued to um, Gizmodo, and perhaps beyond that, she said, quote, a home is a huge financial investment. And these days, consumers are seeing all too many examples of climate-related risks like fires, floods, heat waves. By bringing Climate Check's data to every location page on Redfin.com, we're making it easy for consumers to make better informed decisions about buying, selling, and renting. 
Well, again, I, I don't know where this is going. I, I don't know how these um, zip codes are going to pan out. But I tell you, there's a lot of zip codes in California, Nevada, probably Arizona, uh, probably Oregon and Washington, certainly Florida, uh, certainly other low-lying locations on the East Coast, and probably other places for other reasons that are going to not score well. Now, that, maybe that'll infuriate some of the local real estate leaders, but I think this is an important service. Uh, this is information people ought to be considering. And uh, the fact that they're using the climate check data is encouraging. So um, again, looking at more of this article in Gizmodo, the um, risk assessment that uh, Redfin is using is based on dozens of models from various groups and agencies, including the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I wish they had an easier name to say. Um, it's also using data, data from uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, from the U.S. Forest Service, and FEMA. Everybody knows what FEMA stands for, right? Okay, so the assessment is based on the worst-case climate scenario in which carbon pollution rises unabated. Analysts then make these global models relevant to the local level with a technique called downscaling. So Redfin believes it's tapping into a real need with this new service, and I would confer, I, I concur, I'm not in the market to buy a home. But if I was going to buy a home, and if I was open to considering where in the U.S. I might live, I would be looking at that real seriously, real seriously. And, you know, I, I mean, in some ways you don't even, what Redfin's doing is important. In some ways you don't even, you, don't, you, know, you just need to look at, the, look at the map of where the disasters have occurred in 2018, 2019, 2020. And there are some in Iowa. I mean, we had our derecho. No way to predict that. Uh, that was basically a tornado, 40-mile-wide tornado across the state. No way to predict where that might come next. Of course, we can predict that there's probably going to be flooding on the Missouri River, on the Mississippi River, and then probably on some of the larger rivers in between, like the Des Moines, the uh, Iowa River, the Cedar River. We've had these flooding events before. We'll have them again. Well, you know, you can, you can move a short distance from that river, maybe just halfway up the bluff, and you'll be safe. Uh, again, the derecho, harder to, harder to pinpoint. But, you know, there's, there, aren't, there aren't too many places in California anymore that aren't in the most severe level of drought. And there aren't too many places that are going to be free from the risk of fire. And there's really no place in Florida, especially southern Florida, that's going to be free from the risk of being under seawater. So, you know, while the, the survey is, is helpful, these, I mean, I'm really looking forward to just panning through the zip code, uh, you know, uh, assortment here and seeing where they recommend people live. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I know some of the places where people are going to be, where zip codes, zip codes are going to be scoring very, very low. And that is unfortunate but reality. So I want to point to you one more resource relevant to mobility and climate migration. This is the UA, US GAO. That's the Government Accountability Office. It's a very it's a good nonpartisan office. They they don't they don't they don't kowtow to partisan pressure. They do a good job. And uh, in, in in a 2020 report, this is last year, they um, concluded that and I'll quote, unclear federal leadership <laughs> is the key challenge to climate migration as a resilience strategy. Because no federal agency has the authority to lead federal assistance for climate migration, support for climate migration efforts has been provided 
on an ad hoc basis. For example, it has taken over 30 years to begin relocating Newtok. Now, I'll pause. Newtok is the Alaskan village on the ocean that has seen the uh, coastline recede incredibly due to climate change. And the other, the other example given in the GAO report is uh, Ile de Jean Charles in, uh, in Louisiana. And that uh, relocation effort has taken more than 20 years. So let me read that sentence again. For example, it has taken over 30 years to begin relocating Newtok, New Alaska, and more than 20 years for Ile de Jean Charles, Louisiana, in part because no federal entity has the authority to coordinate assistance, according to the stakeholders in those states. Well, and that's, um, I mean, here's the GAO, again, bipartisan, I will say nonpartisan, not bipartisan, nonpartisan, basically saying, yeah, uh, the federal leader, the federal government we work for is lacking leadership when it comes to um, a climate migration strategy. And uh, that needs to change. And so maybe some of the changes will happen at the private sector, like we're seeing with Redfin. Maybe we'll just see people start figuring it out on their own. But it wouldn't hurt to have more coordination at the federal government level and at other government levels as well. I mean, even at the city level here in Des Moines, for example, you've got different entities that work on different aspects of, of climate change and land use related to that that sometimes are at odds. And that should change. Okay. Hey, we're going to take a short break here. When we come back, our final segment, we always talk about food, farming. Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to have a garden update for September. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Folks, what's growing in your garden? Hey, for us, September, one of the best years for, uh, for food production here in Iowa, uh, as, it may, as I presume it is for much of the country. I, I want to take a quick second, speaking of food, to thank our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. So yeah, food, gardening, you know, we always devote the last segment of this program to that, and it's a particularly exciting time for us to be doing that because the garden is kicking butt. Kathy Burns, welcome to the program. Thanks, and I want to do an official shout-out from Birds and Bees Urban Farm, 
which is, you know, the food that we grow here is called Birds and Bees Urban Farm. But we also mentor other people in um, growing food as well. And uh, shout out to first-time gardeners for this uh, this year. We have uh, several family and friends who dove in this year and they are really it's just fun to see them send pictures of what they're growing and they're doing great well and, and uh, we had a chance to visit um someone we did a consultation for two years ago mm-hmm. and their plot is just taken off i actually i am hugely jealous of their success with brussels sprouts you're outside trimming <laughs> brussels sprouts right now and our brussels sprouts are shameful this yeah. year and we we need to we need to figure out how to do if that if i was allowed to use a few expletives on a on a, a fcc fcc station i would use them to describe our brussels sprouts they're horrible but this person has i mean and again she's only been doing this for two years mm-hmm. they are just beautiful full well-formed i mean just thick she's- all the way up the stock She's planting cover crops. She's doing compost. It's really exciting to see how she's she's uh, and again, got a handle on it. And some people are struggling, as often happens. But you know, it seems like most of the people I've talked with are, feel like they're doing pretty well. So if it's your first year gardening and it went well or it didn't go as well, uh, keep it up and uh, just just connect with other people growing food. And, you know, I guess listen to this segment when you can, because we do talk a lot about food. Yeah. But right now, we're, we're just about to fall, and we're in the fall garden season. And in the middle of the fall garden season, you really want to keep your eye on planting, planning for next year's crops. I know it's a drum we've been beating all year in the spring. We talked about think ahead to fall, and now we're saying <laughs> think ahead to spring. In fact, you might even think ahead to winter, because that, that's when you might be planting your seedlings. In, your, in the basements, undergrow lights, wherever you do that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and it, it's really hard to think about next spring when you're in September because you've got so much coming in. Here's a good first step. Uh, if you're not already doing this, take a moment and jot down some notes uh, about what went well this year and what didn't go well this year. Um, was there something that you planted too close together? For us, again, that was zucchini. <laughs> did you build your beds uh, in places where they get adequate sun, or did you have some deficiency there? Was there food that you really loved and you want to do more of next year, or the opposite? Was there something you planted and you just couldn't find a way to use it or you didn't enjoy it? Cucumbers. So, <laughs> too many. Well, we like them, but you know, it doesn't take many cucumber plants to get inundated. And some people have the same experience with zucchini. That doesn't seem to be us for some reason. We have some zucchini, but not not a crazy amount. It's a, it's a good idea to keep some kind of garden journal, whether that's a spiral notebook or a special bound little pretty, you know, craft paper book or whatever you want to keep your notes on. Just jot a few things down now and then because you'll forget. Yeah, we use a Google Doc so that Kathy and I can both get in there and mm-hmm. mess around with it. Mm-hmm. And it's extensive because <laughs> well, we keep we track, too, of what we plan uh, to to have growing one year to the next. So uh, speaking of one year to the next, you uh, should be thinking, and you maybe already have, about amending your soil now or as soon as you harvest all of this year's crops for next year. Where are you going to get compost or manure or whatever you're going to put in there? We talked to someone recently who had been gardening for a long time and just... And they were having no luck at all. Mm-hmm. It, it started off great years ago, and it got to the point where they had no luck anymore. And guess what? They didn't do anything to amend the soil. And they, they didn't rotate crops much yeah, either. Right. So, uh, yeah, if the soil the soil needs to be fed like we need to be fed. We can't put in a good day's work unless we get yeah. fed. Well, and another way to look at it, too, is it, in nature, 
soil is always being regenerated by more well, by animal manure, mm-hmm. um, also by plants that die and decay, uh, and by creatures that live under the soil. Not just the large creatures you can see, like gophers and groundhogs. The little microorganisms. Oh, I mean, the, the billions of microorganisms mm-hmm. that live in, in in even a small amount of soil that are doing their part to keep that alive. And if they're not being fed, if they're if you're you know harvesting a crop and then putting nothing back into the soil. That's the you know that's a, that's a that doesn't work with your bank account either. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a definite give and take yeah. to gardening, and we want to create that balance in the earth and in our lives too. Um, rotating crops for the for next year. Not all crops need to be rotated, but certainly potatoes and tomatoes and some of the heavy feeders. Yeah. And we've talked more about rotating crops, and we won't go into a lot of yeah. detail. I just remember as a kid in, in Ireland, my my uncle, I would notice that they'd plant. The, the potatoes in a different field every year. I thought, well, that's why do that? You know, why not just use the same place? You've already got your ridges built. And then I, and my uncle didn't even know why they did that. <laughs> they, he just knew that they had to move them every year. He had no idea why. Blight. <laughs> yeah, well, blight and other other problems mm-hmm. too. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's really rotation is tough when you're doing a home garden because you don't have as much space to play around with. That's why keeping notes is a great idea. You remember what you planted even two, three years ago, and some some crops need a couple years off before they go back in that same the Tomatoes, plot. what, like three or four years, I think. That's best. Yeah. That's best. Don't yeah. panic if you say, oh, my, I planted tomatoes the same place two years ago. You're okay. Well, maybe. Just, just think now about <laughs> redoing it yeah. um, and saving seeds. Um, yeah, saving seeds, so important. If you are saving seeds, uh, you should be doing that now if you haven't already. And if you don't save seeds, that's fine. Think about where you ordered them from this year, where you want to order from next year. Were you happy with what you got? Did you really get what you thought you ordered? Um, And then remember that the past couple of years, Mm. seeds have been selling out at the major distributors early. So you want to make sure that you're you're already, you know, planning your order um, ahead of time and getting that in early. Yeah. Uh, and again, if if you're if you are if you are if you are not raising saving your own seed, I recommend pick one. Pick one plant. Mm-hmm. Maybe a, a tomato is really easy. A pepper is even easier. Pepper's so easy. Just, you know? just we, let it get good and ripe. Split we, um, it open. We have several crops that we're saving seed for the first time this year. Celery, and we did that because celery is a, a biennial. Mm-hmm. So we had to dig up a celery plant last fall, bring it inside, and get it through the winter. And now it. it I can't tell you how many seeds that one plant produced. It's a lot. Yeah. And celery is a good crop. We're saving radishes as well, collards, cucumber. We're trying cucumber and zucchini new this year, and that should have been a given, but we're, we're, this is the first year. The we challenge is every, adding. The challenge is every, every plant is different in terms of mm-hmm. what you need to do. So You can Google that, too. Yeah, Google that. <laughs> or, or contact Kathy at Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Yes. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us, Kathy, and happy gardening, folks. Good luck with the fall harvest and planning for next year. Thanks to our guests today, Mark Allen Derry, Tony Messina, and Bruce Hagen. Thanks also to our squad of uh, Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself. And thanks to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for joining the Fallon Forum.